0: Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to In the Beginning. How many of you are fascinated with the book of Genesis just a little bit? You're still trying to figure out where the dinosaurs are, trying to figure out the whole creation thing. It's, there's some weirdness in Genesis, isn't there? Like, man, like, like in between the big stories, there's some little stories that will freak you out. You probably even read some of those. But anyway. I'm not probably even gonna cover most of those. I'm gonna cover some of the big ideas from Genesis. And today I wanna start talking about Genesis chapter one and this big thing called creation. So if you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter one with me or you can follow along on the screen as we dive into what I believe is always an interesting, always a fascinating, even always a highly debated book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Let's start reading together. The Bible says this in Genesis one, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And so there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated light from darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate The waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse. Doesn't this sound confusing or what? There's an expanse and there's waters everywhere. Verse number 8. And God called the expanse, what? Heaven. And there was an evening and there was a morning and that was day number 2. And then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas. And God saw that it was good. I love that. You just, you make something like, hmm, that's good. You ever ever, like do that with your food? Especially if you're not a good cook, you're like, you're surprised. Like, wow, that was really good. You know, if you're a golfer, you hit a good shot once in a blue moon. You're like, wow, that was really good. You're excited about what you make. And God seemingly compliments himself. (laughs) It's really good. Verse number 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was, that's good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give a light on the earth, and it was so. And God made two greater lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw, well, that's good too. And there was evening and there was morning, that was day four. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw it was good and God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning and that was day five and God said let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock creepy things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that's good too. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Thank God for that. And God blessed them. Wouldn't the world be bad if it was all dudes? That'd be just... And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said... Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. We used to use that scripture to manipulate certain ideas as teenagers. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird on the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was, it was real good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day, thus the heavens, I'm almost done. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God created his work. I'm sorry, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I think that's more scripture I've ever read in one flash than ever before. And that right there is roughly Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2 verse 3. Let's pray this morning before we look at them together. Father, we thank you so much, God, that your words are true. But God, they're dynamic. They're interesting. They have depth and layers of meaning. And Father, we pray that, God, you would just give us a glimpse, that, God, you'd help us get a flash and an idea, and above all, God, let these words connect us to you, God. That is our prayer today in Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. That was a lot of reading, wasn't it? And There's a whole lot of stuff in there, and just so you know, there's more stuff in those X number of verses that I just read, there's more in there than I can bite off and then I can bite off and chew and get through and talk about and dissect. So I'm not even going to attempt to. So if you're here today and you say, but Todd, what about? I know. But you didn't cover, th- I know, I can't cover everything. I'm one man and I got one Sunday morning right now. So what I'm going to do is do my best to kind of show you what Genesis was and what it was not, what it was kind of really targeted to be and what it definitely was maybe not meant to be. And as we walk out of here today, I want us to have just a few big ideas that we carry out of here because if the world had these big ideas, the world would be a different place. And I know that for sure. Now, real quick, when we look at Genesis chapter 1, which we're not going to reread the whole thing again, but I'll kind of breeze through and hit some different ideas. Genesis 1 is, is a really, really interesting thing, and you've heard different pastors and different teachers, or whether it was secular teachers or whether it was biblical teachers, dissect this in a number of different ways. So let me give you an example. One of the ways that people look at Genesis chapter 1 is poetic. Everybody say poetic. If we were to take a look at Genesis 1, there is definitely, when you look at the Hebrew language, there are some definite marks of poetry there. The way that they would put together their words and the way that they would structure their sentences and structure their paragraphs and outline the way that they would frame things that's how they did poetry. There's some definite poetry when it comes to Genesis chapter 1. So one of the easy ways that people look at it is like, hey, that was just meant to be poetic. It was just meant to give us like a pretty picture of what creation is might have looked like and so Genesis one even has that when you look at the poetry of it what you look at is the symmetry and Hebrew uh, poetry uses a lot of symmetry and what they would do is they would say well look how they created it is that in essence God created space and then filled the space does that make sense so in day one what did God create well first thing he did was he created space but then when you drop down to day four he fills it with light and then in day two he, he creates water but in day five he fills it with what well, what would he fill with water Fish, yeah. And then in day three, he, he creates the sky. And then in day six and five, he fills it with what? Well, fills it with birds. And so you find that the earth, is in th- I'm sorry, the earth is in three, and then the animals and the humans are in six. And so God just creates space and then fills it and creates space and then fills it. And then on the seventh day, he does what? He rests. Again, giving you kind of a beautiful picture, an idea. And God didn't have to tell you that he rested. He told you he rested to your own benefit because he knew you needed to rest. And that rest would one day symbolize something even greater that's just one way of looking at it. That it's simply just poetry the second way that people look at it is is just literal flat out literal that some people and there's a there's a definitely a movement inside of christianity i don't think outside of christianity there's this movement but inside there is and it's this is that that thing is absolutely literal like them were six 24 hour period days and day one we we're just and god was bam And that was literal. Like it took a one 24 hour period and boom, God. And and, and absolutely, God in all of his power and might could absolutely do that. And we don't deny that one bit. But there are some people that say that is absolutely literal, exactly the way God did it. And they would, they're they're what we would call young earth believers. And they believe that the earth is literally only about six to 7,000 years old. And he exactly created it in six days. That's another view. And the third view is this is that it's more symbolic. Yeah, it could be poetic. I don't think it's literal, but, but some people say, no, that would be symbolic. That literally, because David and Peter both say things like this, that a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like a day. So really these, these days represent large masses, amounts of time and God just shaped them. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a fascinating book I read uh, it, it's, he's, a, he's a Jewish theologian and, and physicist that's a weird combination his name is Gerald Schroeder and he wrote a book called The Science of God which he describes he was an MIT professor now he's a professor at Hebrew University he's, just, he's one of those guys that's so smart he makes your brain hurt and you can't really follow along all the as a I matter mean, of fact there's parts of the book where he says I'm about to get technical you may want to skip over this and I'm like well I'll try You know, I'm a pretty smart guy <laughs> I read like half a pen I'm like nope done And and he gets into the math behind why he believes and and, and absolutely as a believer in in, in saying, I believe that this did. And what he does is is real weird. He takes Einstein's law of relativity, which is E equals MC squared. I'm sure we all know what that means. And and, let me, I'll just, we'll talk about it since we all know what that means. Um, It's Einstein's theory, which became a law of relativity, which in essence said things are relative. And what was relative in Einstein's theory was what? Time. Time is relative. Which makes no sense to us because we've never understood anything other than the time that we live in. And he came out with this idea. And then they took decades and decades and decades now to say, is this really a real true idea? And they figured out, yeah, this really does work. And the way that they did it was is they realized that time here on earth moves differently than time in other places in the universe. Because E equals MC squared has to do with the fact that velocity and gravity change the components of time. Meaning that time, so for example, if you were to go to the sun, which has a different gravitational pull, it has a different time. Like if we measured a year on earth and we measured a year on the sun, a year on the sun would actually be one year plus 67 more seconds because time moves differently at the sun. The way they figured out that is by measuring wavelengths inside of the light beams, which that's real easy to do. And so, you know, they, so they do all this weird scientific stuff to figure out, wow, time is relative. And that is an incredibly hard idea to grasp, isn't it? Like, but that's the old saying, though, that like if, you, if, you, you know, if you stuck your, your grandma into a spaceship and you, you ran her through the universe at the speed of light, this much time would have passed by and she would have come back and only been a young girl. Or you know, there's the, that, that idea is based on Einstein's theory of relativity that says time just moves differently. And what Gerald Schroeder does is say that really in Genesis 1 the way time is described is differently than the way that time is described from Genesis 3 and forward. That God measures time differently, which would make sense, and here's why. It's because the sun and the moon and the way that we gather time wasn't created until day four. So if the moon wasn't rotating the way that we think it rotates to create 24-hour periods, the way the sun moves and the way the earth rotates around the, well, how was that a day? And what he goes on to say is that, well, that that was a day to God because even at the speed of light, time stands still, which explains why God sees past, present, and future all in one shot. Because God is light. Light. Interesting, weird, odd. I don't even know how to make sense of that stuff. But you know, here's the best way that I can help you understand all of this, that if you see it as symbolic, that's fine. If you see it as poetic, that's fine. If you see it as literal, that's fine too. None of these arguments is a morally superior argument to the other. It doesn't make you a better believer and them a lesser believer. And it should never, ever, ever put Christians at odds because here's what I know. You weren't there and neither was I. And we might all have it wrong. We could all get to heaven and be like, man, y'all are silly. That's not what that meant at all. I didn't mean any of those things. We don't know. We, nobody was there. And so my point is this, is never let these things divide you from other believers. Don't have mind reminder on the minor, but whether we should... Major on the majors. None of these ideas in Genesis ever take away from who God is at the core of his nature that he sent Jesus into the earth as a Messiah to live, die, and be risen again for the salvation of our souls. None of that changes. And so if anything I can tell you is, man, be cool, you know? It's all good. We're all gonna be in heaven one day and we'll all figure it out, but let's not be mad and throw things at each other in the midst of trying to figure out Genesis 1. Can I get an amen? amen? That's just how I think. Maybe I'm wrong too. So anyway, the, the, the Bible ends up explaining these ideas in, in Genesis 1. And, and, and here's what the other thing that I need you to know too. And I'm going to put your soul at ease real quick here. Because some of us, when we grew up in school and we went to biology class and the, the, the guy's telling us all about evolution, he's telling us all these different things and, and we're like, well, what? the Bible says this and science says this and they're somehow at odds with one another. Can I really, really help you real quick here? Here's what, here's what we actually know about science is that the more science discovers, the more the Bible looks accurate. And we, we should never be at war with science. As a matter of fact, you should never fear science. Like, oh, what if science somehow disproves God? that's not possible. Science can never, ever, ever disprove God. Does that make sense? Here's why. The basis of science is based on observation. You can't observe an invisible God. So my my point is this, is that you should never be afraid of science. Even if science contradicts what you know you believe, here's what I would like you to do. Be patient because given enough time, science will eventually prove you right. And this is what we discovered on both ends, because Christianity made a bunch of dumb mistakes too. Like when guys came out and said, actually the earth is not the center of the universe, the sun is, and and then Christians got all huffy and threw that guy in jail. (gasps) When the Bible never says that the earth is the center of the universe, why did we do that? And we have all these ways that that science and the Bible have been war with each other. And can I just tell you this, what science ought to do with Christians is be patient. And what Christians ought to do with science is be patient. And, and, And if we were just patient, we would see that this thing is actually converging at a very fast rate. Because here's what science has proven. And these are huge leaps that science has proven directly related to Genesis chapter 1. The first thing that science has proved here in the last, let's say the last hundred years is this. Is that the universe had a starting point. Now that's huge. You may not think that's huge, but you've always kind of known that. Either by the science of uh, the day you've lived in or the fact that you grew up a Christian and just believed the Bible. But see, for centuries and centuries, people believed in terms of secular science that the earth was just eternal. And we figured out that's not true. And while that's groundbreaking for science people, that's just kind of common knowledge for Bible people because we're like, well, duh. In the beginning, God said, let there be. boom." So this whole idea of a big bang and God saying, let there be light, just sheesh, they, they end up coming together. And the other one is this. The the other interesting one is this, is that life did not rapidly begin, or or that that life did not slowly develop, but that life sprang forth rapidly. That's the second part that science has discovered, which we're like, okay, well, that makes sense. with the Bible. Because the problem is with all the different gaps and all the different problems with sciences, and what they've eventually come to discover is, is that there are these moments where life bursts forth. And then there's these moments where life bursts forth. Not that it was this slow, 15 billion years where an amoeba turned into because that'd be weird if you came from an amoeba wouldn't it and that just doesn't make a lot of sense you have to have a lot of faith to believe something like that so this is what science has proven is that the universe had a starting point and a starting time which we believe and the second thing that science has gone on to prove lately in just the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years is this is that life began to spring forth Rapidly, which we see that all throughout Genesis one, because God would then say, "And let there be this," and poof, and it was so. So, if anything that I want you to take away is that is that all of these ideas, whether you look at Genesis one as symbolic or as poetic or as literal or as whatever it is, or anti, it's not anti science, and science shouldn't be anti Christian. They are converging. And the longer we give science, that's why I said be patient, the longer we give science, the more and more science will begin to show up with what the Bible has been saying for thousands and thousands of years. Everybody say, okay? Okay, so now that I wrap that up, now we're gonna move on because here's what we really wanna know about. Is that even though all this is there, I'm gonna help you real quick here, Genesis at at its overarching idea is not meant to be a scientific document. That was not the primary reason why Genesis was written. Genesis, let me put it like this, if I can put it in words, is that above Genesis above being scientific was meant to be what? Theological. It was meant to give not just ideas of what science and creation was like, but to give you ideas of what faith and what God was like. And this is what we're going to see is that Genesis then begins to define for us, even before we get into Jesus, before we get into prophets, before we get into the Torah, before we get into anything else, is that the Bible, even in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God defines for us a whole new reality of what he is like. Of what mankind is like and what reality is like. Are you tracking with me so far? Here's why we know this there is an ancient document that dates back further than the Bible. It's from Mesopotamia, which is basically where we believe life began, which is, if you remember, where the Tigris and the Euphrates, it's roughly in the area of what Babylon was, Iran and Iraq. This was the area of Mesopotamia where Father Abraham, that's where he came from, from the land of Ur, which is a part of Mesopotamia. An ancient Mesopotamian document called the Enuma Elish. Everybody say that with me. Everybody say Enuma Elish. Yeah, that's weird. We don't really know what that means. Actually, it, it's, it's, it's their language went on high. It was their original document and the most ancient document that records what man believed about God and about creation, which I said dates back further even than the Hebrew Bible. And what we discover is, is that when you put them side by side, that Genesis now becomes a counter argument to the way people believed during that day and that time. That when you lay them side by side, it was Moses laying out in the book of Genesis, it was saying, well, y'all have said that this is God, but actually God is not like that at all. He's actually like, like, like this. And, and, and mankind is not, that's not where we came from, and that's actually we came from this. And this is not how meaning and destiny and purpose and morality work. It, it, it's, it's actually like, like this. And let me, so let me tell you what the Enuma Elish is about. The Enuma Elish starts out with two gods. All right, their names would be this, and they're, they're really hard to say, but I'm gonna do my best. Does anybody wanna take a, a shot at the first one? Aspu? I don't know. Sounds borderline at church, but anyway. The second one I'll, is Timat. And these are the two ancient gods that started the universe in the Enuma Elish, the most ancient Mesopotamian document of religion in the world. And these were the two great gods that existed. And then what they did was, this is the boy and this is the girl. This one represented fresh water and this one represented salt water and this one was a big giant monster. And basically what they did together, what, what happens when male and female get together for too long, they make children. And so what happens is, is that Aspu and Taimath start making mini-gods. According to the enuma they start having mini-gods. Well, here's according to the legend and according to the story how it worked out. What do kids do to parents? Get on their nerves, right. So, um, I mean, bring blessing and happiness. But, but in this case, in this case, the, the, the many gods, the children God, irritated Timat and Aspu and, and made them upset. So the two great gods decided we are going to kill all of our little mini children God. And so all the mini children God realized what was going on and they elected a leader. His name was Marduk. Everybody say Marduk. Now, even in Nebuchadnezzar's day, who was the God that they worshiped? Y'all are so not. Come on. Marduk, and you can name your dog that I'm a Marduk. Isn't Marduk, I've heard that before, Marduk is a dog thing, but, but, but anyway, this was the God that Babylonians served, this was the area of Mesopotamia, and this is, this is again the way that they believed, now here's the deal, Marduk said, I'll lead the army of the young gods as long as when we win, I am promised to be given sovereignty over all. And they said, sure, because we just don't want to die. So what Marduk did is he led the army against his great-grandparents, Taimat and Aspuh, and he defeated them. And in, in, in Taimat, what they did was is he cut her in half, and then half of her became the heavens, and the other half of her became the earth. Isn't this great? This is where, yeah, they, this is where people believe they came from, which would do wonders for your, you know, your self-worth and your feelings on reality. This would do great for you. So, so Marduk then has all these other gods underneath him, But they're angry, and you know why they're angry? Because they got got assigned jobs, duties, and responsibilities, and then they had to do work. And so they complained to Marduk about all the toil and work that they would have to do. So they said, hey, can you do something for us? And Marduk said, yeah, sure, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create some people. And the people, you'll rule over them, and then they can take care of most of the toil and the work that you have to be responsible for. And this is where we all came from. And Genesis all of a sudden comes out as a counter argument to say, no, that's not where we came from. No, that's not who God is. No, that's not what's going on in the universe. As a matter of fact, when you go back to Genesis, you can take Marduk away, he's gone. And so in Genesis one though, you find what? In the beginning, God. Do you know that God has no biography whatsoever? Do you know that God does not have a story? Do you know that creation did not start with an epic battle? There is no mythology to God. There is no, you know, story of how he whooped this other God and and then he took over supremacy of the world. He didn't do any of that. As a matter of fact, you don't find him even being associated with nature, that he is completely outside of nature and completely sovereign over nature. This is a totally different view. There's nothing mythological here. Notice this. is There's no magic involved. In, in the Mesopotamian documents, in any old ancient doc, there's always some type of mythological thing that's going on. There's incantations. God doesn't use incantations. He just speaks, and it is. There's no magic words. And then lastly, when you look at how mankind is created, in the book of Genesis, the Bible says that God creates man in his own image, and likeness that he's molded and handcrafted from the clay. From the Enuma Elish, mankind was molded from the blood of a rebellious God named Kingu. Kingu, K-I-N-G-U, Kingu. This changes everything. And you'll see it by the end of the day here that this and the way that we look at God, the way that we look at people, and the way that we look at reality shapes our worldview and therefore ends up shaping our future. Because the most important thing that Genesis wants you to understand is this. Is that number one, God alone is sovereign. Without question, without doubt, without hesitation, that God alone is sovereign. That man was created with intrinsic value. That there is something in you and there is something of me that has the image of God stamped on me. And that thirdly, that there is a divine purpose and a divine Morality. These three things here, I promised you're so quick to overlook, and I'll tell you why. It's because most of you were born in America, and most of you were born underneath. Even if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you were brought up in somewhat of a Christian worldview. Whether you even know it or not, you were. Because most of you grew up, if not thinking God was alone, but you, were, you, were, you grew up thinking you don't kill people. That's just not right. Because life is valuable. You, you were raised that way. You, you were raised that there is a morality. That there is a right, and there is a wrong. But see, when you take all of this away, everything begins to fall apart. Again, creation was the expression of the omnipotent, sovereign, unchallengeable will of the absolute transcendent God to whom all nature is completely subservient. This is what Genesis is all about right here. This is what you need to, you need to write down and remind yourself on a weekly basis is that what the world shows me of what God shows me of what is all around me this is absolutely true whether it's symbolic or or literal or whatever this is what creation shows me And see, when you take these things away, I want you to begin to look at what happened. Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about what was going on in the 19th century in America when we were having a war and killing our own brothers and sisters and killing each other because we believed it was right to make another person a piece of property and a slave and to mistreat them and abuse them in any way that we saw fit. And we went to war and killed each other because of it. And in hindsight, we look back now and we say, what were we thinking? See, if you could go back to those three things, what you'll find is this, is that somewhere along the line, we lost sight of this idea and this reality that every human being was created in the image and likeness of God. Yep, black people, white people, Asian people, Arabic people, pretty people, not so pretty people, people that are tall, people that are short, people that are good drivers, people that are bad drivers, People that you like and are friendly and sweet and people that absolutely get up on your nerves. Yeah, I said get up on your nerves. That's a different level. And see, and and then we move forward and we think, well, what about, and then we move forward from the 19th to the 20th century. Do you know that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in all of human history? See, there was a guy named Nietzsche that came along. There were some guys and some philosophers that came along that said, "God is not real. God is completely absent." And we came up with these communistic ideas that we could mold and shape the future, and it would be better without God. You know, the problem with taking away God is is if there is no God, then there's no one person to give this really intrinsic value, and there's no one to establish purpose and morality. I mean, let's just be honest. Let me, let me put it in the most horrible words I can put it with. If there is no God, Hitler did not have a bad idea. Survival of the fittest. Let's just take out all the weak and only, let, let's create a superhuman race and let's just do, why? Because at the, at the core of it, if there is no God, there is no meaning and there is no morality, we should just figure out how to survive the best we can. Because if there's no, and you could say, but that's just not right. It's not right according to Who? There's only one person that can give moral law. It's a divine moral law giver. Other than that, it's just objective ideas about what suits my needs, my desires, my whims, what I believe is best. If there's no objective truth, then what's true to me is just true to me, and whatever's true to you is true to you. So if I want to kill you so that I can win and have your stuff, that's just true to me. Because when we take away morality and meaning, when we take away value over humanity, which is all rooted in the idea of a sovereign and holy God, everything falls apart. Even today, what are we looking at at the start of the 21st century? We're looking at all kinds of people. Let's just use one for example. We're looking at a sect of Islam that thinks that God wants me to kill other people and he wants me to annihilate an entire nation. And if doing so, I will be rewarded for it. The reason why this stuff was established was because during the days of Mesopotamia, they literally were killing their children in an altar to try to get God to help them. When you forget that God is kind and loving and good and sovereign, when you forget that humanity was created with intrinsic value, everything falls apart. When you go back and you look at the ideas of Stalin and Hitler and Mao and the millions, millions and millions of people that they slaughtered and the idea that it doesn't matter because when you take away this, the world will implode upon itself. Go back to the book of Genesis chapter six. This is in essence what God found himself with after man had fallen apart. He found a world that was in total chaos and that was so depraved and so immoral. He said the only thing that mankind wants to do is only wickedness always. That's bad. Only wickedness always. That's not good. Can you imagine your children like that? Only wickedness always. And he even came to the conclusion that my only shot is to take one family and wipe out this entire people group here because that's the only way we can rebuild a society. Because when you remove these three things, everything falls apart or implodes upon itself. And so while these ideas are somewhat similar to you or somewhat kind of normal to you, they're not normal in all of the world and they are not normal throughout all of time. Never forget that Genesis was meant to be a theological blueprint to show you that God, is holy and sovereign. That mankind has intrinsic, incredible value. The image of the creator is stamped on mankind. And that there is a meaning and a morality and a purpose to this thing called life. And to that we all say, amen. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. And so here's what I want you to do in light of these ideas. It's real simple. I want you to live as if God is holy and sovereign. I want you to live a life that says, you know what, no matter what my circumstances are, I know God is in control and I'm gonna keep living for him no matter what and I'll let him make sense of all the mess and chaos and confusion that I have or all the questions that I have or all the things that didn't come. I'm gonna continue to live as if God is holy and sovereign. I'm gonna live as if mankind is stamped in the image of God, which means this, I'm not gonna treat a certain people a certain way just because of the color of their skin. That Black people are stamped with the image of God. Asian people are stamped with the image of God. White people are stamped with the image of God. People of different belief systems than you stand with the image of God. And we need to be careful in how we deal and treat and love other people. And that life, we should live it as if it were destined for meaning and purpose. That you were born with a plan that you were born with God having premeditated what he wants for your life and what he wants for your future and what he wants for your family and what he wants in your personal, God has a plan for your life. So we should all be asking, what is that plan, God? What is it that you've put inside of my heart? What is it that you've called me to do? And how is it that I can best live that out for you? And when you have all of humanity living like this, you have us going back to the origin of life. You have us going back to what God originally intended. Last thought, and I'm going to close with this because I told you I would. I would tell you that Jesus is laced throughout the book of Genesis, that he is both there symbolically, he is both there physically, he is there in types and shadows, I'll close with this because it's just kind of interesting and I want to remind you of these truths. Genesis chapter one, verse number one in the Hebrew language. Are you ready? Now, in the English language, we just know it goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the ancient rabbis believed that the entire sum of the universe could be contained in the first verse of the Bible. That's what they believed. And they would have all these fascinating ways of which I, don't, I can't even take the time and I'm not that smart anyway. It's pretty amazing I, I'm just going to dabble with one single element of it, and it's the element of Jesus. When we look at these words, we have, and I can't say Hebrew words. Real well, I actually hung out with a, a woman from Israel the other day, and they have just the amazing, and they do all that with their words. I can't do that. So, we, we, but we have here is this: is Bereshit bara Elohim et ved vet haaretz. And the first word is this. This is the word that we get the phrase in the beginning of. That's that. Bara means created. This is a word that only means created by God. All other places in scripture, they use a different word whenever man creates something. This literally means created from nothing. This is the word, what? God, Elohim. You have this little interesting thing that we'll come back to. And then you have this word, which means the heavens and the earth. Now you say, where's Jesus in there? I'm gonna tell you where Jesus is in there. What's interesting is, is that how many letters or how many words are in this sentence? Seven. There's seven words in there. So, so here's what they know. They know that, that seven, and, and, and Hebrew people are very, very big in numerology, in biblical numerology, and seven represents one of the most important pieces of, of Jewish history and Jewish culture, which is the menorah, because the menorah had seven different candles on it, and the first one was always the centerpiece of it. The first one was higher than the others, and it was lit first, and it was made out of crushed metal. This little thing here, the et, would be the centerpiece of it all, wouldn't it? The et, now let me tell you what the et is. Et is not a word. You can't find it as a word, and it doesn't translate. If you were to go to a Hebrew translation, English translation of the Bible, the et does not translate. In their grammatical way of using it, they would use it as to direct, in essence, what the object of the sentence was all about, which we do different ways in the English language. But in the Hebrew language, sometimes, this is really strange, sometimes, but not all the time, they would use the word et to make sure that you knew what the direct object of the sentence was. Sometimes, but not all the times. Now, et is this. Et, E, is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, T is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It would be the Aleph and the Tav. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, what did Jesus say that he was? Let's read it. The Bible says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come. Now, let me ask you a question. Alpha and Omega are what language? Greek. But John wasn't Greek and Jesus wasn't Greek. So when this Book of Revelation was translated from Hebrew to Greek. How would they have translated that? If you said, I'm the Alpha and the Mago, it would be the equivalent of saying, I'm the A and the Z. But in Hebrew, they would have said, I am the Aleph and the Toph. And what Jesus was saying by saying these words is this, is I go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, verse one. I am the centerpiece of all creation. Colossians 1, 16 says that nothing was created that was not created by him. John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were created by him and nothing that was created was created except by him. He said, I am the olive and the tov. Now again, I told you this represents to them also the menorah, the menorah was this, it was the centerpiece that you lit first. Didn't Jesus say, I'm the light of the world and give light to all men? He is, the light. he is the centerpiece of all creation. He is the centerpiece of all mankind. And he gives light to everyone. Remember I told you he, it was made out of crushed metal? Isaiah said that he would be bruised for our iniquities. He would be crushed for our transgressions. In the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, there's so much more I could say about this, but I'll just leave it at this. Here's Jesus as the centerpiece of all God's creation, bringing us back to he is the olive and the taft. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one who is and was and is to come. And Jesus is a part of all of it. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much that, God, your words have incredible depth, incredible meaning. There's so much to learn, to gather, to glean from. And, Father, we just pray. God, we pray that we would walk out of here hungry for more of you. Hungry to know you more, hungry to know your words more, God. Hungry to follow after your ways, God. Father, as as Christians, you said that we get to be the light of the world. God, I pray that we would be, God, a people that would show the world that, God, you are holy and sovereign. That we would be a people that shows the world how to treat one another. Or as in the words of Jesus, they will know if you're my disciples by how you love one another. God, let us see people with having your image stamped on them, and let us be careful to treat them with love, the greatest virtue of all. And God, let us live with meaning and purpose and morality, knowing that there is a purpose behind all of this, God. Let us be the people that shows the world what you look like, God. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. And we all say